Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thank you guys once again for joining the Nine Innings Podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of Nine Eye Capital Group. Thank you guys for joining us. As I always say, subscribe to the channel. As I always say, go and get my book, MLB to CFP, live on Apple and Amazon. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at info at nineeyecapitalgroup.com. Send us your questions or you can go to the website at www.9icapitalgroup.com. Schedule an appointment. As you know, we're here to do what? educate empower and engage and today we're doing that we're here to educate you because doing some thinking have you ever thought why do you make these money decisions what's your behavior around these money decisions well today we have another phd to explain financial behavior what makes us tick mary carlson phd adjunct professor of texas tech adjunct professor of university of georgia let's get it we have mary carlson phd cfp afc i mean acronyms <laughs> behind your name that means she's she's learned she's learned i guess the term is learned but hey thank you for joining us on the 980s podcast today thank you it's been great to be here with you kevin well i'll tell you this you're my i think you're my third or fourth phd that we've had so i think i'm getting a a doctorate or something <laughs> in in this financial world i have my cfp but but you've gone above and beyond so talk to me a little bit about you have your phd so what made you after you had your got your PhD? Well, did it come first or second? Like, tell me a little bit about that. Did you go PhD first, CFP, or vice versa? Oh, great question. Well, let's back it up even more. Yeah. I thought I wanted to, in high school, I worked at a bank. Yeah. And I loved working with people and money. Mm -hmm. And so people would always ask you, well, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I was like, I don't know. I like people and money. So, of course, I went to the business school at my undergrad and thought, going to work in finance, right? Yeah. Because that's people money. Well, any of you in finance, you know, that's not people money. That's money in a lot of spreadsheets, like yeah. corporate finance, right? And so fast forward, uh, I found personal financial planning at Texas Tech. So I was at another institution, transferred to Texas Tech, fell in love with personal financial planning and thought, now this is really people and money connected. Mm -hmm. So after graduating with that, I got my AFC first, actually. And so AFC, for those of you that don't know, is an accredited financial counselor. Okay. And it really emphasizes working with people. So you still have your basic budgeting and, and spending plan skills, and uh, you understand kind of the basics of personal finance, but it's really about working with people. So I started there, uh -huh. and then I went to work in Washington, D.C., because I felt like after I got my master's, I wanted to share with everyone else what I had just learned, right? It was that natural teacher in me. Mm -hmm. And so I went and started knocking on the doors of Congress and looking for jobs on Capitol Hill. Long story short, I got picked up by Financial Planning Association in DC when they had a lobbying arm and I became a lobbyist. That was my first job out of college. <laughs> nice, nice. So that means you got your PhD first, then your CFP, or was it? No, that was just the master's. Okay. I then sat for my CFP and passed, and they wouldn't count my lobbying experience as requirement. Oh, Even though I was working on the legislation side of it, they didn't want that. So fast forward, I went for a work for a couple of wealth management firms, and then um, 
switch over. Found that wasn't my niche. Yeah. And went to work for the Pentagon at that point. And so I spent uh, three years flying all over the world teaching service providers to the military about personal finance. And then I, so that's how I got my CFP. And after mm-hmm. that three year time period, I switched over to Fort Riley mm-hmm. and work on the installation there while also getting my PhD at Kansas State. And so it kind of was, it's, it's an evolving process. And I feel yeah. like that's kind of the same with our client lives, right? Like you can't just take a moment in time, but it's it's one thing leading to another. And so, yes, the AFC to the CFP to the PhD. Wow. Um, and it's all about learning about people and behavior. So the emphasis in my PhD is around uh, financial therapy, yeah. specifically in financial behavior change. So that's really where I specialize is more the communication, the behavior, the psychology of money. Um rather than just what you need to do and how you need to tell people that. That sounded like a Bell Biv DeVoe, AFC, <laughs> CFP, PhD. <laughs> it's Whatever those letters mean. That's all good. Hey, that was great. Hey, so you, you, you're learned, you're learned, you have, you're an adjunct professor, University of Georgia, adjunct professor at Texas Tech. Um, I'm not going to say Big 12 versus the SEC. I'm not going to get into that fight there, but ultimately- you are you, you have to be very busy. So tell me how how that works. I mean, are you are you doing maybe two or three, maybe a month here or a month there? Like how is how does all that work? Yeah, you bet. So let me fast forward. Once I got the PHA, came back to DC and I worked for an association. So I worked for both federal government. I uh, worked for an association for local government. Yeah. And then I worked for associations. So I've lived in DC off and on for over twenty years. Yeah. Uh, every. Capitol Hill and beyond. So my real love for that is working at a very macro level, I would say, in this personal finance world. Um, I got married about nine years ago and decided, hey, I was on the road traveling all the time. So we started to start a family. And that's when I started as an entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have since started and shut down four businesses. I'm on the fifth right now. It's called Financial Behavior Keynote Group. Hey, serial yeah. entrepreneurs. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong serial, with that. You know all about that. Yeah. <laughs> like this entrepreneur side has really kicked in. And yeah, I'm really excited. This one. Um, so what I'm doing now is I take experts. So a lot of time academics or even practice, but evidence-based research and information and apply it to practice. So what's happened in this world is academics talk to academics and practice talks to practice. And I'm really working on merging those two worlds together so that we have uh, informed decision-making based and rooted in theory and in research and in practical matters, but in done in ways that people can understand and apply immediately to their business practice. You hit the nail on the head, academia versus real world. They'll say, hey, answer this in the test world. This is a test world answer. I'm like, well, it doesn't work that way, especially on the CFP sometimes. You're like, well, I know the answer. I know the real answer, but the test answer is this. You know what I mean? So yeah, merging the two is going to be quite quite fascinating, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. And it's not read the teacher's mind, right? What am I thinking? And answer that question. Uh, In fact, everybody that I've got on the team, I'm I'm growing. I've got up to 15 teachers right now that are putting out great information for experts. So it's kind of the experts expert to say in a lot of ways. Um, And what we're looking to do is enhance. So many of you already have your own financial planning firms or interested in that. Or if you're a consumer learning, wanting to learn more about how money works in family dynamics and in relationships, 
that's what we specialize in is really that communication level and how people work with people. Because let's be honest, Kevin, AI is here. It's here to stay. Robo-advisors are alive and well, but it is, does not replace the human. And I think at the end of the day, the reason planners matter is because we're humans connecting with other humans. Robo, robots and AI will continue to help move us into some future, but it cannot replace who we are and what we do. And so the human side is vital to financial planning. And that's where we get into the behavior. So a great segue, by the way, you're better at this than I am. This is great. So um, you wrote a book, Anchors, mm -hmm. Ostriches, and a Hot Pair of Scissors, <laughs> and it's on available on Amazon. So you get really deep into the behavior side of things. I recently had a podcast with another individual uh, like yourself, Michael G. Thomas. Thank you for the uh, introduction, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, he had a book really rooted in behavior and finance. So if, I'm going to ask you this question. So you work with a lot of people. So tell me an instance and not don't name any names, of course, but tell me an instance where it wasn't just, hey, spreadsheet based, you know, like it wasn't like, well, I'm doing this because this is the 80, 87% of the time it works, but it was based on, you know, the behavior, the family dynamics, the, like getting really deep into the conversation. So talk to me a little bit about an instance where you've had a real deep conversation where the money and the outcome really didn't matter. Absolutely. Um, let me back up a little bit on the mm. book. What we do is we realize there's this fancy thing called economics and there's this fancy thing called behavioral economics. And we yeah. thought, well, there's, we're all really interested in, we've read some books. Some, some books are a little thicker than others. <laughs> there's a lot of interest in this, but there were no books that directly apply financial behavior to financial professionals. Yes. And so that's what we wanted to do is really break down this idea of behavioral economics and really streamline it to personal finance. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was take 10 common, what we call cognitive biases. We all have them and we break them down and say, what is a cognitive bias and what are heuristics? And keep in mind, heuristics is a fancy word for their shortcut, mm -hmm. a mental shortcut to overcome that bias. Mm -hmm. And so what can planners, what do they see in their offices? And how do you overcome them? So let yeah. me give you a very common example. In fact, this is one of my favorite stories. So I had a client when I worked for the government. And keep in mind, in this, I work with people with top secret security clients. Uh, yeah. If you don't know, that actually requires them to have their finances in order. They yeah. get their reports pulled. They um, are constantly being monitored mm -hmm. of incoming and outgoing. In fact, uh, research has shown in early 2000s, the number one reason for espionage is financial. And yeah. over 60% of espionage cases were, were based on financial. So long story short, that is something that if you've got a top secret particular clients, you got to have your stuff in order. Yeah. That's where I had two government clients and they came in and they said, hey, we're drowning, right? Like we keep going overseas, trying and trying to make up because every time you go overseas as a government worker, you're getting all the extra pays. Anytime, think of military, right? Every time they deploy, that's a big sum of money coming back. And they had just bought a million dollar home. This is pre-2007, 2008, had yeah. three mortgages on it. And I said, great, let's sit down. Let's start working through where the spending is going. And they actually did an awesome budget. They started to capture things and put things in an awesome budget. I, being the financial planner mind that I am, said, oh, let's run your 
debt to housing ratio, right? <laughs> so I started to calculate for them. Let's just take the three mortgages you have and calculate what that housing ratio looked like. That housing ratio, and I only use net, which means after tax, so yeah. whatever hits their bank account, it was 80% of their net take-home pay. So what that means for those of you that don't know what I'm talking about here, that means 80% of what they got in a paycheck went to pay their mortgage. I will tell you, that is not sustainable. We haven't kept the lights on. We haven't put food on the table. We haven't put gas in the car. So here we are, we're working on a, a budgeting thing. Well, there's only so much you can do with 20% of a budget, right? Yeah, <laughs> very little. So far. So we kept going back and having conversations. Look, the elephant in the room is this mortgage. Like, I shouldn't say mortgage, mortgages, right? Mortgages. Your house heavy, cash poor, and it's only sustainable for so long. Well, we have a concept in behavioral finance called the ostrich effect. Mm -hmm. And that ostrich effect means it's so overwhelming that I can't deal with it. Mm -hmm. And they had done something else called mental accounting of if I do this and then move it here, then it'll all work out. And at the end of the day, they didn't want to make that change. And so interesting for me from a financial planner perspective is I did everything right. I ran all the ratios. I did all the calculations. I showed them the fancy spreadsheets. The part that you come back with and you're like, but they didn't do what I told them. How many of you have had clients that just don't do what you said, even though you know it's the right answer? And I'm going to put that in quotes because I really do not believe there is one right answer. There's not one right answer. Um, You're absolutely right. Yeah. But I think that was for me the moment that the light bulb came on and said, oh, this is much more than just about knowing the technical side. It's much more than knowing how to run spreadsheets and numbers, right? And I had known that from some of my earlier expenses. I also spent several years working for the military. And one of my jobs there was helping families of the fallen. That means after a soldier was killed in battle, the family gets about half a million dollars in death gratuity. Mm. And the quickest I ever saw that money, amount of money made. Now, keep in mind, this is the most money that family will probably see ever in their lifetime. Mm. Three months that money was gone. Wow. And that's because there's a lot of feelings and emotions, blood money, guilt, anger, frustration, friends come out of the woodwork. It's Mm. very easy to spend it and you never get that back. And it also doesn't bring your loved one back. Yeah. So that's, these are the lessons that as I started to really get in and see these situations and work with people that money was not just a, here's what you need to do with it. And here's how I suggest you allocate it and all the fancy things we learn. It was real. It was part of who they were tied to. And it was not me telling them what to do. It was helping that discussion begin and figuring out together how to move that needle. Because at the end of the day, and I will always say this, the client is an expert in their own life. We are just the outside facilitator and discussant. And we can add to that. But the client is the one at the end of the day that's making those decisions and moving the needle. Mary Carlson, thank you. Thank you for that. So we're you're listening to the 90s podcast. We are on with Mary Carlson, PhD, CFP, AFC, and author of Anchors, Ostriches, and a hot pair of scissors now available on Amazon. We just talked a little bit about that. You know what you're what you best mentioned? Like there's there's one side of it that's on the left hand side or the right hand side. I guess I'm on the right hand side. It's my right. And you have the opposite extreme where a person, like I have a client 
I'm not going to mention any names. Government job. See, they'll, they'll, not only will they have the government pension, whether it be the, the the big government pension coming out, and but they've also been paying into Social Security. So they'll have that Social Security benefit. Oh, by the way, you have this huge savings account, a 401, a 401k, quote unquote 403b inside of that. And they and 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 they feel insecure. And their husband has five different pensions. So they'll have $120,000 of guaranteed income day one, no matter what. Oh, by the way, you have another million dollars sitting on the sideline. But I, I, I got to continue. to. I just don't feel like I have enough. Because you know why? Because they've been oversaving. Not saying they're oversaving, but they've been saving so much over the last 30 years of their lives that they don't know what else to do. Right. So it's, it's both extremes. Right. You have the extreme where. I, I I put 80% in my house. You have the extreme where it's like, I just don't feel comfortable enough. And I have a ton of money. I don't know what to do. So that's the behavior side of things. And, that, and that's where you come in. Well, Kevin, you hit the nail on the head because you said they feel mm. that they don't have enough. The feeling overrides everything else. And I guarantee if you sit down and start having conversations with this client about their money history and their money past and where they came from and start delving into that, that starts to play into why they are doing what they are doing. I remember a client when I worked for a wealth firm literally had an estate problem. And when I say had an estate problem, had so much money in that estate that they were going to be paying the government more than they were going to be giving their kids. So the idea was get it out now while you're alive Mm -hmm. so that there's something to transition on. And this sweet little old couple, they must have been in their 80s, turned to each other and the little wife pats her husband on the the leg and says, honey, do you think we could redo that kitchen we've been wanting to do for so many years? (laughs) And I thought, well... You still have an estate problem because now you're just reinvesting the asset and the <laughs> house is upgrade, right? Like, but I thought that is exactly it. Well, I guarantee you go back. These people lived through the depression. Yes. That had a very formative, yes. formative part of their livelihood going up. That is who they become. So it is never going to be enough. And so what we, well, As a financial planner, yes, we've got the numbers and the statistics and everything, and it can make people feel good or bad or indifferent. In your case, it hasn't moved the needle at all. Mm -hmm. And so what matters more than that is the, the, the history, the family history. This could have been passed down. I've had clients that have had three generations of bankruptcy. And they were continuing to pass that legacy on down to the next generation. And I had a really frank talk with them of, this is what you're passing. You can also have it the opposite way, right? That there's so much with money. Money is just a tool. It's an object, but it's all the meaning and the value and the decisions that we put into that, that, oh, have so much more of a deeper level. And that's the onion part where you just start peeling back the layers and then you start to understand why people make the decisions they make and it, oh. it affects you from childhood to adulthood so let's get into that really quickly so sure. i want to ask you a couple of questions because i like to when I, on these podcasts I like to get you know deep with with my with my you know my co-host quote unquote my sure. co-potion so um the why around why you're in this industry you kind of went through it a little bit but 
explain to me your background with money in regards, not, not going too deep, but about, you know, something may have happened, but explain to me your background with money and why you chose this industry. Oh, really good question. Thanks for asking. So I grew up in a very middle income family. I do have stories from my parents when they first got married saying they were so poor that they literally their first Christmas together gave each other a case of corn and a case of green beans because that's what they could afford. So that was their first Christmas present to each other. <laughs> um, so we didn't grow up rich by any stretch of the imagination, but I am the oldest of six kids. And at some point my father had five kids in college all at the same time and was able to help each one of us along the way. Wow. Since then, and that has come from a lot of hard work, a very, I am, I am a product of my father who would, mm come in with his, back in the day, they had these old checkbooks. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an entrepreneur as well. He had his own company and he used to take that in and he would diligently balance his checkbook yeah. to the penny. And he would go into the bank with his big checkbook and be like, you're 10 cents off. And I'd be so mortified. I'd be like, oh my gosh, yes, that's my dad. Right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? But he was very diligent. Now, my mom, on the other hand, she was the one raising the six kids while dad's off working all the time. So she was the ones responsible for all the groceries and everything else. Long story short, I didn't know. We lived in a nice house. We were in a nice neighborhood. We had, I felt like everything we needed. I mm -hmm. didn't realize how tight things were at the time. Mm -hmm. Let me fast forward in and tell you a little bit about my husband. Mm -hmm. My husband remembers growing up homeless. Mm -hmm. He remembers having 10 bucks or even five bucks at a time. So this would have been 80s and 90s and walking to the store with his dad and his dad would turn to him and say, hun or son, you got $5 this week. And they would buy bread and pinto beans. Mm. I mean, milk was a luxury. Yeah. And so those are the types of things. So to this day, when we got married, by the way, on our second date, Poor guy. I was like, let's talk about money. What kind of debt do you have? <laughs> <laughs> really uncomfortable with that conversation. Somehow we still got married yeah. uh, and we've had lots of conversations since, but it's so interesting to watch him play out because I, I grew up accustomed to being able to go to the store and get what I needed. Yeah. Wanted, let's be honest. I go to yeah. Costco and throw a few yeah. extra things yeah. in the basket and it doesn't even phase me. Yeah. My husband amazingly can walk into Costco and I have a list. He will stick it to it like glue. And he was the kid that never whined at the front of the grocery line with all the crap that they put out front trying to get little kids to grab it mm -hmm. and whine at their parents. He never did it because he knew very early on, we don't have it. Mm -hmm. Don't even ask for it. And so it's really amazing to see how his very formative, I mean, we're talking early, early years mm -hmm. have affected him 40 years later. And how it's affected us in our marriage and how it even translate into how we teach our kids about money. In fact, he'll talk to them a lot of times because our kids haven't gone without food. They haven't been homeless. And so there is that lack of appreciation for it. And so we have some frank conversations in our home about you eat what you eat because it's what's available and you'd be appreciative of what you have. So those are the types of things I think how even in someone who studied it, I'm still affected by some yeah. things that happened early on in those formative years. And so each of us has our own money story and our own money history. And that can start to play in to all of a lot of the decisions and how we behave with money now. Well, Mary, we appreciate your time today. I know we like to keep these, these short. Thank you so much for that, 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 I guess that, that brief, but 
exciting just overview on, on behavior because like I said, it's not about the outcome that, oh, look, it's going to work, but it's about what's actually inside and learning, learning. I mean, that's my question. My last question is going to be like, how, how much more important is it to learn that how this person and their money history is versus just getting their statements? Give me all your statements. Give me your tax forms and all that stuff. I mean, what's more powerful to you? That that that, that first conversation with behavior or getting all those statements? Like, if you had to choose one, you can only do one. Like, you can gather all the data or just really just have a simple conversation about money history. Which one would be more powerful to you? I'll bet you can guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly, it's, right? It's your spouse. It's absolutely 100% conversation. But I would argue the same thing as a financial planner. In fact, I used to ask um, clients to come in. I had kind of a little ticker sheet, like bring your tax statements, bring your net worth, bring your blah, 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 blah. I learned that me asking, just simply asking them to bring that in brought so much anxiety to my clients that I some of them just canceled the appointment. Mm -hmm. So keep in mind, if you're a financial planner asking people and wanting to have these types of discussions, don't put that barrier in their way. Them simply picking up the phone or sending you an email to contact you to say, I would like your help. That by itself has moved them into a stage of change where they are starting to take action. Don't put extra barriers and loads on them that make them shut down to where they can't even begin to tackle some of the things that let's be honest, are really, really hard for them to face. And so please have a conversation before you ever ask for data because the conversation and and last parting thought, Mm -hmm. um, there is one of my favorite um, philosophers of all times comes out of the field of psychology, Carl Rogers. And he says the greatest indicator of change in a client is the relationship between a therapist he was a therapist and a client yeah that same mantra is true for us in financial planning if you want your clients to change it's not making fancier spreadsheets telling them what to do or shitting on them and telling them how they should do it mm-hmm. it's improving that relationship with 100%. your client and 100%. so communication is 100 percent part of what's going to move that needle forward for your client. So I mean, I would, I'd venture to say, it. I'd venture to say it's more important than the actual outcome because you're never going to get to that outcome without having that initial conversation. Absolutely. Mary, thank you. This has been powerful. I appreciate it. Anything else you would like to say before we leave this, this wonderful, wonderful podcast today? You know, we'd love for you to come take a look at us. Any of you that are looking for further information about this or having more conversations about money and psychology, go to keynote.financial and you'll find a continuing education page full of webinars and all kinds of tips and tools that you can have and use with your clients or yourself in a spousal situation if you're just wanting to learn more about money. Uh, Mary Carson, president of Keynote Group. And of course, adjunct professor at the University of Georgia and Texas Tech. Again, I'm a, I'm a Red Raider. I'm a, I'm a Big 12 guy. So I didn't go there, of course. I mean, as you can see, I wear purple for TC. I'm a Fort Worth guy. But hey, thank you for joining us on the 90s podcast. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. Thank you, Kevin. You've been listening to the 90s podcast hosted by yours truly, Kevin Thompson, founder and CEO of 9i Capital Group. Get my book. 
MLB to CFP, subscribe to the channel. Thank you to Mary Carlson, who has been a pleasure. She's a PhD adjunct professor and founder of the keynote group. And if you have any questions, you can go to her website, like she just mentioned. Also, don't feel free to contact us. Send us an email at info at 9icapitalgroup.com. I'll go to my website at www.9icapitalgroup.com as well. Schedule an appointment. As you know, we're here to do what? Educate, empower, and engage. And we had a wonderful guest. Thank you for that. Stay humble, stay safe. We'll see you again soon.